price. That's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Emmett Savage is chief investor and co-founder of My Wall Street. My Wall Street's mission is to get their readers successfully investing in the stock market over a long-term time horizon. And on top of timely market insights and illuminating educational content on the firm's app and website, Emmett offers 24-7 access to his Horizon portfolio a group of 20 to 50 stocks, all of which Emmett believes possess the potential to 10x over 12 years. A professional audit of that portfolio showed a 24% annual return over more than a decade. That record has since been bettered, and Emmett now averages a 30.8% annual return, triple the S&P 500's yearly average. We discuss Emmett's six golden rules to investing, his current stock picks and long-term portfolio favourites, as well as his 10-point pre-trade checklist. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Emmett. How's things in Dublin? How locked down is Ireland at the moment? Thanks for having me, Hayden. Yeah, things are good in Dublin and in Ireland. The population now are, for the vast majority, vaccinated. I think something like nearly 90% of everybody over the age of 12 has the vaccine. And as a result, uh, we are slowly being given our civil liberties back. And in fact, are even giving booster shots now to the elderly and the vulnerable, as I'm sure they are in London. Yeah, great. Yeah, seems like a similar situation over here. Um, all right, let's get stuck into the podcast. Now, I want to start by asking a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. So do you think there's one trait or characteristic all 10 bagger stocks have in common? Can I give you a qualitative and a quantitative answer, which is effectively two answers, Hayden? Um, one, the one Absolutely. qualitative attribute most common to 10 baggers is a passionate founding CEO, someone who has seen the business grow from the very first pound, euro, or dollar of sales into a business that it is today. And these people are not motivated by any one quarter's performance and in all likelihood wrote the company's mission and vision, which they are striving to achieve. From a quantitative perspective, there are a few attributes, but the main one is quite obvious, and that's growth quarter after quarter, year after year, ideally growth in earnings per share, and then as a magic multiplier, a growth in PE. So let me say 10 baggers see EPS and PE growth in tandem on a sustained basis. So that's two answers, really. Uh, but the two, with the one qualitative and the one quantitative attribute is passionate founding CEO who's still at the helm and then growing earnings quarter after quarter. Yeah, great. Perfect overview, I think. So we'll cover that in more detail further uh, through the episode. But let's dig into uh, that topic later, as I say. But first, I think it makes sense to establish the context for today's interview by covering actually how My Wall Street came to be in the first instance, and hopefully identifying the firm's mission if we can. Uh, I read you first started investing in the 90s. So talk to us about your experience of the dot-com crash and why this was such a pivotal moment for you. Mm. Warren Buffett attributes being born 
in the right part of the world at the right time as one of his success factors, which in other words, is entirely down to luck. My equivalent was that the dot-com crash happened when I was 25 years old, which for me meant that didn't absolutely impinge on my, my lifestyle. I didn't need the funds in my portfolio. I was young enough to brush it off and I was only investing what I, as they say, quote unquote, could afford to lose. And it was a pivotal moment in my life because you can read about the psychology of what happens inside your head when you lose something. And Jason Zweig does a great job of that in his book, Your Money and Your Brain. But when you live something, you feel it. And I still recall the feeling of panic when the dot-com bubble burst and my online broker locked me out from trading as I'd bought on margins. And the broker selling my positions in front of my eyes to cover the credit that they extended to me, um, it was really disempowering to see five or six years of what effectively was super normal gains being wiped out and the remnants sold off. Um, so really we, as creatures, I think recall feelings easier than we do facts. And that day, perhaps even that hour was a pivotal moment in my whole life. Um, and here we are 21 years on and four of the six golden rules that are codified into my wall street are derived from that very real life lesson where in a matter of days, I went from being the most, um, well, the most prosperous 20-something that I knew mm. to being absolutely broke. Yeah, well, a, a real inflection point, uh, it seems, when I charted your career history before doing the interview. Uh, to what extent, then, when you reflect on that crash, do you think it was a predictable event, or, or conversely, was it a black swan? What's interesting about that question is that if we got into the world, if we got the world's top 100 economists to independently predict the start and the end point of the next crash. And the, prob the probability of us getting two matching answers is the same as any random selected event. So if a market crash was entirely predictable, then the stock market dynamics would also completely change because money would flow in and out of equities based on that event, which would effectively accelerate the problem and the recovery and all that we understand about the market would actually break. And the reason the system, the stock market system works is that at a mathematical level, it is chaotic, as in chaotic maths, which is, I don't want to get too scientific, but it's a dynamic system that's highly sensitive to initial conditions. It's funny, even after a crash, economists will vary in opinion on the exact reason for its occurrence. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, at least this reset, if I can use that phrase, seemed to afford you, I guess, the clarity and, and, and ideally, I suppose, the time to essentially start from scratch. You talk about sort of starting from zero at that point. I read that you subsequently studied the greats like Buffett, who you've already mentioned, Munger, Peter Lynch as well. Were you able to identify a consistent set of rules or characteristics that linked these investing legends? To a point, yes, I was, because all investors buy for the same reason a return mm. on capital, whether it's Warren Buffett or your great granddad, by investing, we forego a pleasure today in anticipation of a reward in the future. At the far end, however, at the point of sale, that's where you see a multitude of different approaches and as if philosophies come to play. And it's a stretch to mm. say that no two investors sell for the same reason, but it's not wildly inaccurate. I think the one rule that links all investors when they're 
buying shares in a business is the ability to identify some sort of sustainable economic moat or a sustainable competitive advantage. That's their characteristic that all good investors can point at when they decide to invest. And these advantages, as I'm sure you know, come in loads of different forms like patents and um, government licenses, or there's high switching costs or switching complexity, or there's a brand recognition, or there's cost advantages, or even a supply of a scarce resource and material, size advantages, and so on. Like there are a whole kind of book of of advantages. But the one thing that all investors should be able to point at, which explains why they believe the business can continue to perform and improve. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll go through hopefully some of those characteristics in a little bit more detail further on. And I guess that brings us to the point that that study, that research gets you, I suppose, to the point that you are investing well, you've built maybe more of a portfolio, more of your investing returns up from that crash that we talked about a moment ago. And then you set up Rubicoin that subsequently became My Wall Street uh, back in 2013 now, I believe. So what was, what was the reason, what was the inspiration for setting up that company? Was there a eureka moment, do you think? Mm. I was always going to do it. I was always going to set this business up. And, and my Rubicoin was just renamed to My Wall Street. It's the same company. We just thought uh, we need to evolve our name and brand and, uh, and image. Mm. But um, the eureka moment was convergence. Mm-hmm. of a few things within a couple of weeks. The first was about eight years ago or thereabouts, my friend Michael, who at that time, I didn't really know, he's a new friend, asked me to meet for lunch where he asked me to get my personal track history audited, like professionally audited. He had attended an investment seminar I delivered a couple of years previously. And since then was of the opinion that I may have something decent. you know. So I got a full professional audit from a small very small Dublin audit firm, um, which resulted in a proven and 12-year compounded annual growth rate or CAGR of 24.5%. So the first letter I got uh, from an auditing firm outlined my 12-year my my, my CAGR of 24.5%, which Michael uh, in fairness to him was suitably impressed with. <laughs> um, and then coincidentally, my wife and a few other key people in my life all said to me that I just have to give this whole stock investing for the masses thing a shot. And that as long as I'm not doing that, I'm in denial of, you could say what I was born to do. So I walked up to the best operator I knew, uh, John Tyrrell, my co-founder, and asked him what he liked to quit his career and co-found my Wall Street with me. And that was the beginning. And that was the, the, the kernel of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if we had to define My Wall Street's mission statement, what do you think that would be? Our mission is to get the world investing successfully. It more or less is the very first thing that John and I wrote down when we sat in his kitchen with a whiteboard and two markers, and it's never changed from that day to this. Yeah, great. I think that really carries through on the site and the content you put out as well. But what what do you think My Wall Street does differently? How, how are you set apart from comparative investment sites or services, in your opinion? Mm-hmm. My Wall Street is a real human intelligence service, or HI, that's aided by artificial intelligence, or HI aided by AI. But that's a load, frankly, that's a load of mumbo jumbo. The real truth is absolutely nobody 
beats our track history of success. We pick winning stocks, and that's what sets us apart from every other service out there. Simple as that. For 99 US dollars a year, our loyal subscribers get a short list of what we believe are the best stocks for the long run, and then a stock of the month on the first Monday of every month, which is the one we believe is the best buy right now. And the history, the track history of that speaks for itself. It's 7x up on equivalent investments in the S&P 500. Yeah, great. Okay, well, let's move on to your invest philosophy. Uh, Later, we'll get into your strategy. So the nuts and bolts of that philosophy as well. So we can dig into how exactly you do pick these stocks and uh, how you've managed to attain that very impressive track record. With the average UK savings account offering around 0.6% interest, and that was 2020. I mean, it's, it's if that now in 2021. To what extent is it more important than ever for people to make their money work harder, do you think? Mm. It's no surprise. And I'm I'm certain that absolutely every one of your listeners knows that inflation erodes your savings and that the £500 you stuffed under your mattress in your old bedroom 30 or 40 years ago now has far, far lower spending power. But it's really interesting to look at the Bank of England base rates from 1979 through to today. And let me just summarize it. So in 1979, the Bank of England, England base rate was 17%. Incredible. Then all through the 80s, it hovered around the teens, um, you know, the, the low teens, and, and then the 80s kicked in, and it dropped in 1982 below 10% for the first time, where it hovered around the kind of 10, 11, 12% for, for the 80s. Mm-hmm. Then in the 90s, uh, 1990, the, the, the Bank of England base rate was, let me have a look here, was around 13.8%. Still great, still amazing. That was 1990, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, 1992, the base rate went down to 5.3 and started to slide down into single low digits. By 2001, the base rate was 4%. And then by 2008, it was 2%. By 2011, it was a half of 1%. So we have seen the more or less consistent erosion of the Bank of England base rate from 17% in the late 70s to a fraction of 1% today. So we have collectively been forced to look for alternatives beyond our working capital, which most of us keep in a current account as opposed to under the mattress. Like we, you know, most people keep the, you mm. know, the fridge full and the petrol in the engine um, with a current account, maybe a deposit account, but anything beyond a few months' expenses, we are forced to look for alternatives to keeping it stuffed in a, what was once called a high interest deposit account because they don't exist anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that perfectly outlines why people, I suppose, should invest and why they need to get their money working harder. But a recent report that I read stated 33% of the UK population invest in financial markets. And that's if we consider the vast majority of that group are invested indirectly via things like their pension. So why do you think there's so few of us are directly invested in financial markets right now? Oh, it's absolutely cultural. Like, there's no question about it. America is a country where it's each person for themselves. And it's at least far more so than in the UK. Like, look, for example, at the NHS versus its equivalent in the US. Now, mm-hmm. I'm aware, look, I know the NHS is not perfect, but it's way closer to perfection than almost anywhere else. Like, culturally in the UK, people know mm-hmm. they can rely, in this example, on the NHS. In America, the importance of private health insurance is verging on the working person's obsession because they don't have this safety net known as the NHS. So if we take that culture 
It permeates into financial planning on both sides of the Atlantic. In America, the stock market system is set up for every person because when you hit retirement, you better be ready, whether it's the 401k in America or Sarbanes-Oxley laws, which came in post 9-11. Like the story of America's stock market is one of alignment with the woman and man on the street. In the UK, which is an ancient civilization, you might say, when compared to Australia or America, stock investing is far, far less a part of history. It is cultural, no question about it. Yeah. And if, if we kind of dig into that further, then even a simple investment in a US stock market tracker, like an S&P 500 ETF, for example, would have beaten uninvested cash in every 25-year period since 1929. So this brings us on, I think, quite neatly to, to your sort of second pillar, I suppose, of, of your investment philosophy. How important is it for the average retail investor to think long-term? Hayden, it is the difference between success and failure. It is that black and white. By going long, you reduce taxes, stress, and most importantly, you allow your investment thesis to play out. One of my favorite research pieces was published, well, where I read it was on GitHub, which is a a geeky place to park data. And (laughs) um, it's called Investing Returns on the Market as a Whole. So if your listeners want to see and read a very interesting piece, uh, go to GitHub and Google Investing Returns on the market as a whole. And the study is based on Robert Schiller's work as built with the S&P 500's monthly returns since 1871. Now, Bob Schiller is an economic, a Nobel economic prize winner, as I know you know, Hayden, just for listeners' sake. And the S&P 500 was only born in something, I think it was 1953, but he synthesized the S&P 500 index back to 1871. So we are talking about a study that has big, big data. And from that data, there are a list of years where you could have invested and still be down. So the number of years where you'd be down after 10 years um, was your statistically, the probability of being down after 10 years is 11 0.8%. And this study says, so that means had you invested in 1908, 1909, 1910, 1911, 1912, and so on, you would have been down after 10 years. And that statistically is 11.8%. If you stretch it out and say, well, what if I held for 15 years? The probability of being down drops dramatically to only 4.7%. Okay, so less than one in 20 chance of being down after 15 years. And again, those years are are laid out for us to inspect 1905, 1906, 1907, and so on. Now, let's say, what's the probability of being down after 20 years? Well, only once. Had you invested, sold a farm and invested in the stock market as defined by the S&P 500 in 1901, 120 years ago, you'd have been down after 20 years. And so in other words, it's 0.0664% probability. And then, as you said at the top of the piece, Hayden, the probability of being down after 25 years is zero. So the greatest resource that you have in your arsenal, frankly, you you can't manufacture, and that's 25 years. Um, So after 25 years investment in the S&P 500, the probability of being down over the last 145 years is a perfect zero. And this is yet another proof point with real big data that long-term investing is the only game in town. 
Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I want to dig into kind of how you guys at My Wall Street look to outperform benchmark and wider market returns. But before we do, let's finish sort of the case for investing, which I think we're doing a good job of essentially saying to invest over the long term will outperform uninvested cash pretty much over any long-term time frame you care to mention. But if we also kind of finish your, your six golden rules, the third one, I believe, is to identify diversification. So mm. furthermore, you specify 12 stocks, I believe, across several different markets or sectors as a minimum requirement. So, so why is that? Is there a reason for it being 12? Mm. Diversification is the one rule that every master investor agrees upon, whether it's Michael Burry or Peter Lynch or Howard Marks or Warren Buffett or whoever. Like Diversification is ubiquitous. It's common to every single master investor. Where they differ is on the concentration or the number of stocks held. Now, when I sat down and wrote the six golden rules of my Wall Street, each was supported with real data like uh, irrefutable data. And I specified 12 as a starting target because it allows someone to set an attainable goal over a year. And by buying a dozen different companies, they will invariably automatically spread you across businesses of different stages, sizes, and sectors. So I, I said 12 because it's quite a concentrated portfolio, but it's attainable. And it allows you to say, I'm going to buy one different company per month for the next year. They're guide rails. But if somebody achieves that, they will undoubtedly go on to buy other businesses because the habit has been formed. Yeah. Okay, great. So how important then is it to establish long-term conviction in a company? So investing in a business, I guess, in the truest sense of the word versus actually just speculating on the performance of its share price. How important is that differentiation, do you think? Well, it's important to buy what you believe in, mm -hmm. no matter what that is, whether it's a property or a bond or a stock. If you personally do not believe in a company's future, you'd be crazy to blindly buy it because someone over there told you that it's the next big thing. And not every investment needs to possess the potential to change the world. In fact, you can make vast fortunes by investing in businesses that have already changed some pocket of the commercial world and that are maintaining market share and making a lot of money in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's the reason for the question because you know we have uh, some traders, some short-term traders on the, uh, the email list uh, that would argue that obviously identifying undervalued companies or fluctuations or volatility in a certain company's share price can actually be quite beneficial in terms of uh, in terms of investment or trading returns, I guess, more accurately. But to what extent then, and I guess maybe you've answered it there, but just to double confirm on this point, because I think it's an important one, do investors need to believe that the companies they're investing in do at least have the potential to change, maybe not the world, but the sector or the industry that they're in? I think um, really a business doesn't have to be able to change the world. And, but you need to believe that this, to the top of our interview, Hayden, like what is this business's competitive advantage? What's its economic moat? How can it keep going? How can it at least maintain its market share, hopefully improve its margins and widen its base? And, and that really comes down to its competitive advantage. And, and that could be something like branded recognition, like Starbucks, they open a coffee shop and need an introduction to uh, no person, or it could be something that's highly complex, like CRISPR uh, therapeutics, which is into the field of CRISPR medicine, and that the, the barriers to entry are there 
and clear to be seen, which is inordinately complex uh, science and, and patents backing up their science. So you just have to be able to say, I know why this business can at least keep going because they're doing something that's not easily replicated by the next team that come along. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Okay, great. Well, let's use this juncture then to focus on your personal portfolio, the Horizon portfolio. So your investment record is very impressive. Uh, You talked about your professionally audited returns there, which are vastly superior to the S&P 500's annual return, um, almost triple that incidentally. So I think outperformance is one thing to do that over the short term is is impressive. But what our listeners will be most interested in, I suppose, is what the key is to consistent outperformance. So I, my, my compounded annual growth rate improved from when that very first audit occurred and uh, is hovering at about 30.8% over the last 10 years. But the one word that that encapsulates the one thing to... I wouldn't say consistent outperformance, but maximizing your chances of outperformance is temperament. Warren Buffett said that investing is simple, but it's not easy. And a twin sister of temperament is patience. Now, I know you've traders, and that is an entirely different strategy or field of study, if you like. Um, a different set of principles apply. But for long term, buy and hold investing. To the one word that I attribute my 30 plus percent CAGR of the last 10 years is temperament. So allow me to tell you, if you don't mind, how every last one of my 451 uh, buy decisions over a full 19 year period ending on the last day of December 2017 panned out. And the reason I finished it in 2017, the study was that anything since then, as far as I'm concerned, is a short-term investment. But um, so I had one of our, one of my team analyze every single buy decision I made for a 19-year period, 451 buys. So the average return of every single one was average was 696%. So that's equivalent to 451 eight-baggers as Peter Lynch would have coined it. My best investing decision was Netflix, um, as I suppose widely documented in America. And uh, on the May, May 13th, um, I bought shares in Netflix, which I since still own and it's up about 32,000%. But let me tell you how the eight, 451 uh, stocks that I bought break down. So 2.5% of them, or 11 of them, have increased 50-fold. 5.1% have increased over 30-fold. So that's 23 of them. Um, 8.9%, and it's nested, actually, as I, as I call these out, they're nested, like the one is a subset of the other. So nearly 9% increased over 20-fold. So that's 40 of the 451 buy decisions I made went on to grow 20-fold from when I bought. Um, 15% increased over 10-fold. 33 0.9%, just slightly over more than one third, increased over 200%. So there were three baggers. So 153 of the 451 buy decisions I made went up um, by 200% or more. And then just about half were two baggers. However, listen to this. Now, this is really unbelievable. Had I never sold a single stock ever 
Not once. My 20-year Kager or Kager, depending what side Atlantic you're on, would be fully 2% higher, which is insane. It's insane. And this isn't just one guy's story. When you buy right and sit tight, you are automatically improving your probability of success. And that is a game of long-term temperament. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess digging into your strategy then, how do you systemize your process or to what extent have you systemized your process to ensure that that consistency reigns supreme? Mm. So I run, as you know, Hayden, a service called Horizon from my Wall Street, and I've built a team around me in case I get hit by that proverbial buzz. Uh, But what I have done as an investor for 20 plus years and what my Wall Street has done is codified the methodology I apply, and it will remain constant. So I'm, I'm the, the I suppose, the figurehead in the business now and the mouthpiece of the business, but uh, there's a fairly decent argument it will do better without me because <laughs> everything I have ever done uh, is now codified. And the way I go about picking stocks is uh, comprehensively documented internally, and we are slowly building AI bots that are learning uh, every hour of every day from the stock market. Okay, great. So the portfolio stated objective is to target a 10x increase in value over 12 years. So it, firstly, that, that time horizon, is, is that, um, you know, have you purposely selected 12 years because you believe that that's an ideal time horizon over which the sorts of stocks you're picking will record strong outperformance? Is there, is there a proper sort of thinking that's gone into that time horizon, I suppose? There is, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of thinking on this, uh, which actually the kernel of it was the study on my 451 buys. I really needed to understand what was possible going forward. So 10x in 12 years implies a 21% compounded annual return, which is a tall order. Mm -hmm. But to do it in 10 years implies 26% CAGR, which is possible, but less likely. So 10x in 12 years, you know what? If we get there, we'll all be happy. I think if it's 8x in 12 years, I don't think anyone will kick my butt, but I, I, I'm going for, for 10x in 12 years. Well, I was just going to follow that up in terms of sort of portfolio construction, I suppose. Is every stock picked with the aim of achieving that 10 bagger target, or, or do you hold more conservative or even defensive bets within the portfolio? Hmm. Well, the last check I run before committing capital to a stock in Horizon is I ask myself, does this company appear to have the attributes and the plan and the resources to grow tenfold? And if the answer is no, I'm disinclined to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and as my track history demonstrates with 451 buys, this is just the way I've always done it. Okay, great. Well, let's dig further then into the nuts and bolts of that strategy. I want uh, our audience to at least go away with the sense that they properly kind of understand it and hopefully be able to replicate some of these sort of core principles within their investment thinking as well. So what consistent fundamentals or characteristics do you look for in a potential portfolio constituent? So this is to build on on the answer I think you gave to my first question. Yeah, so I have, everybody loves a checklist because especially when you're investing, you want to basically write down a formula and most investors do their best to um, codify what they apply. Um, The reality is, your analysis is using parts of your brain that you just haven't necessarily codified. But let me tell you, there's a 10-point checklist that I apply to every stock I evaluate. 
And um, I five of the, the checks are on the left side of the brain, which is the numeric side, and five of the checks are on the right side of the brain, which is the, I suppose, artistic uh, qualitative side of your brain. So let me just run the numbers first. On the left side of the brain, when I look at a business, and I use Yahoo Finance to do this, and I have it down to seconds, really. I can do it and probably I should start the timer. But anyway, on the left side of the brain, what I look for is high insider ownership, which means that the founders and the senior management and the management and the team running the business have between 5 and 40% of the issued capital. That is a measured optimal point for uh, maximizing the probability of outperformance. So high insider ownership, number one. Number two, market cap. Market capitalization, as you well know, Hayden, total number of shares multiplied by the share price is a rough and ready way of telling you how much you need to spend if you wanted to buy the whole business. So I, I prefer businesses that are circa 20 billion as opposed to 200 billion because it's easier. The probabilities are statistically more um, likely that a business at 20 billion will grow to 200 billion than a business at 200 billion will go to 2 trillion. Um, so market cap is the second thing I look at. The third is I look at enterprise value which by another name means you can tell if the company has more cash than debt. If the enterprise value is less than market cap, it has more cash than debt, and everybody loves that. The fourth, um, the fourth numeric uh, attribute I look for is great return on equity. And when a business has great return on equity, you automatically know it has a barrier to entry because no one else is coming along and eroding that. And great return on equity is anything above 20% is great. Anything above 10% is good. And I guess in the single digits, you might still decide it's a great investment. And then the fifth and final numeric thing that I look for when uh, evaluating business is sales growing year on year. We want to just see that this business is shifting more strawberries, uh, diodes, uh, software than they did in the equivalent quarter one year earlier. So there are left brain considerations. Honestly, you could write a piece of code on your iPhone to grab you and shortlist these with filters um, and, and, and dump the list of names onto your lap, you know, every minute of every day if you so chose. But the right side of the brain is hard to codify because this is where we go into strategic evaluation. So let me tell you the five things I look for there. Strong company culture. Not as easy to measure. You can kind of look at Glassdoor does a fairly good job at giving you a, a star rating on company culture. Sustainable competitive advantage. That's not something that is found on a balance sheet. You know, whether it's a book of patents or a government granted license or access to scarce materials, as we mentioned at the top of the cast, like sustainable competitive advantage is something you need to observe and, and go, bing, oh, they have something. Third is evangelist customers. Like who doesn't like to see a five-star rating on Trustpilot when they go to buy something. You know, if you're going to buy new welly boots, you 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 want to see five stars from 2,000 people on Trustpilot. You're like, great, these are great Wellington boots. Then the fourth thing, a growing industry. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Like, why would you buy shares in Pagers? You know, you want to buy shares in CRISPR. So growing industry. And then finally, visionary leaders. Mm-hmm. And that is very subjective. You know, like, is it a visionary leader? I could tell you, we could find a whole bunch of people who don't think Elon Musk is visionary, believe it or not. So it really is subjective in my mind. Of course, he's visionary, but you know they are qualitative attributes. And those 10 attributes are effectively 10 traffic lights that light up in my mind when I'm evaluating a stock. And I don't have a, a threshold. It's not like I have to see five green. Uh, I've invested in stocks where all of them are amber, but they, there's an X factor. And, and, but generally, that's, they're the guide rails I use. 
Yeah, great. So I guess once every box has been ticked or ticked there or thereabouts, amber or green, uh, as you just mentioned there, on your 10-point checklist, how important is market timing? Um, we're looking at a longer-term time horizon, but do you consider valuation at all when, you, when you're looking to enter a new position? Hmm. I was watching a show last night on TV here in Ireland about the privatization of the incumbent telecoms provider in the late 90s, where an economic commentator said that when you bring, he said on TV, when you bring a heifer to a cattle mart, you soon find out its value, right? <laughs> in other words, your opinion on what something is worth uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's other people's opinion on what it's worth. And in our world, in the stock investing world, the stock market has priced to the pound, to the penny, uh, what it believes the entire business is worth. And that, that price, that market cap, which fluctuates like a leaf in the wind on an average trading day, is a representation of what everyone thinks that business can earn in the quarters and years ahead, you know, brought back to now. So you buy shares in Diageo and you're like, yeah, it's going to sell booze across the world forever and it's great and we're going to get a dividend. And the share price today is a reflection of people's sentiment for that particular stock. What I can say is that with 10-year perspective, the current share price gets it wrong. I kept the most extensive set of valuation spreadsheets in the early part of my investing life that all had this common attribute of being wildly accurate. When I went back and checked them like 10, 12, 15 years, I have every single valuation I ever did right up to when I was in my early 20s. And, and um, I can't say I'm any better at it now because with a 10-year um, perspective, like truly evaluation, you take a shot at it now, but it, it will be wrong. So I do pay a lot of heed to a company's valuation, Hayden, but I don't let it stand in the way of investing in a company that I plan to own until I'm 60 years old and I'm 46 at the moment. Okay, great. And then, well, I, this might be an easy answer to my follow-up question, but I'll ask it anyway. In terms of technical indicators, are you using anything, even something like momentum, I suppose, to time your entry and exit points, I suppose? We haven't talked about selling out of potential positions. You know, are you using technical indicators to, to time those key decisions at all? I'm not much of a person for technical indicators. Again, being there, done that, not for mm -hmm. me. I get most excited about companies that have a first or early mover advantage in an industry that looks inevitably ginormous in a few years. Um, you know, I remember looking at Amazon in 2002 mm -hmm. when it was an $8 billion online bookshop and I guffawed at its value. I laughed at it. And what I failed to realize was that internet commerce was in its infancy and what it's up God, heaven knows, hundreds of folds since. So um, I don't use technical indicators because they are blind to the very long-term opportunity that this business holds. Yeah, okay. Well, if we go back then to portfolio construction and how you conceive the, the portfolio as a whole, and maybe you don't pay attention to kind of the, the makeup or the composite sort of look and feel of the portfolio, maybe it is more on an individual stock basis, but... Is there any attention paid to how diversified you are across a number of sectors or even a number of industries, perhaps? It's not so deliberate. I have never 
and we'll never sit down and say, okay, I'm 54% in SaaS stocks. I better get a few retail, pharma, manufacturing REITs, you name it. That's forcing something that feels very unnatural to me. I want to find and buy as many businesses as I can with the attributes of greatness. I look across all sectors and I will lean towards some industries that I believe have a bright future, but in reality, diversification just happens naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as kind of the conversation has gone on, that, that's become quite clear. It, it seems a completely unconstrained approach within the asset class that you've chosen, which is, of course, equities. But if we think about geographical exposure, it, it's possibly the same answer to this as well. My only reason for asking this question is that it's come to the fore recently with what's happened with Evergrande, obviously China stocks, uh, the fear and the risk, particularly on, the, on behalf of the international investor has, has shot through the roof, really, in terms of investing in Chinese stocks. So if, for example, your portfolio had been considerably overweight China, um, that might be something to consider that might come into your investment thinking in terms of when you pick your next stock, perhaps. Um, I'm putting words in your mouth. Ultimately, is that something that you think about at all? Or again, is it just pick the best stock regardless of sector or geography? I'm not concerned about being overweight or underweight or whatever in a particular region because I'm not invested in anything in China. And I learned that the hard way. So for years, I I gave it a shot because everybody knows and has contemplated the vastness of the country and, and, and therefore the opportunity that goes with it. But I got burned time and time again with what I believe were great businesses that ultimately policy change uh, kind of kicked. So I, I don't invest. So I, it's, it's not that I'm concerned about being overweight in a particular region because I frankly just won't invest in regions that I have um, no, like I, I will never invest in China again. And I, I won't explain why I'd prefer not to. Never, ever, ever, not for the rest of my life. But if if we stick with the terminology, I'm overweight in America as a large percentage of my worth is tied up in Tesla and Netflix. These are global companies selling more or less everywhere. So income streams are truly geographic and diverse. And the same as like the Diageo example I gave you, which will sell booze wherever legal. Mm. Uh, so it's the question, are you buying a British company? Or are you buying a global company headquartered in Britain? And, and it is the latter. So I, I know that a lot of my businesses derive and will forevermore derive revenue from everywhere in the world, um, including China. But it doesn't mean uh, that I, I look at my folio and go, yeah, I'm overweight. I have too many British stocks. I have too many American stocks. I don't do that. No, I just look at businesses operating in a well-regulated first world environment. And that's where all my energy goes. Yeah. Okay, great. So how actively are you managing the portfolio then? We talked about how long-term your time horizon is. That makes a lot of sense. But what does it say about a stock, for example, if you actually sell out of that position? You know, if, if you are supposed to be, I suppose, holding it for that 12-year period because you expect it to 10x by the end of that 12 years, are there occasions where you think, no, actually, we've got this one wrong. We need to sell out of the position or does that not tend to happen? Uh, yes, it happens. Uh, a few years back, I created a system to force me to slow down when I decided I wanted to sell, which, as we know, is as simple as dropping your index finger on a mouse or a phone screen. So you have to be very careful. I listed every stock I had in the left-hand column of an Excel spreadsheet. And on the first day of every month, I'd basically, again, back to that traffic lights, I'd color the cell beside that stock um, in answer to the following question. Am I happy to hold this stock? For another five years. And it really was just a hunch 
that captured my sentiment, which was a reflection of everything I'd observed about that business in the previous four weeks. And only when I had several months of successive red sales, the sales in the Excel, what I consider selling. Uh, so now that behavior is just embedded in how I go about my investing life. But yes, absolutely, sales are inevitable. I've made two sales in the Horizon portfolio so far, and it's only like uh, it's less than two years old, and I can see one or two more coming. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, let's move on to the final question of this sort of portfolio construction and management section of the interview. We've discussed why people should invest. We've discussed uh, how you create your portfolio, how you identify the portfolio constituents within it. And the final question for me then on this section is, how do you establish the weightings of each constituent within that portfolio? Do you follow a market cap weighted strategy, for instance? I don't follow a market cap weighted strategy. My weightings are a derivation of a concept from Isaac Asimov's book, iRobot, where he documented the now uh, widely applied three laws of robotics, which, by the way, Google uh, Google have codified into all their robots. It's, it's actually quite an interesting thing to read. They, they, they introduced the fourth law, the zeroth law, they called it. But anyway, that's another story. So I have three laws that I apply to my investing life. Law one is to maximize returns. Every month, I invest in the one stock that I think will generate the most significant long-term returns because to do anything else is folly. Law number two is to diversify. And every month, I will invest in a new stock except where it conflicts with the first law. Uh, so I won't diversify for diversification's sake, but I will try to diversify. And my third law is concerning boundaries. And I will only own between 20 and 50 stocks, except where it conflicts with law one or law two. And, and typically, the folio that I'm building in Horizon, it currently has 22 positions, I think. And I am when we're in around 30, uh, I think that's pretty much the level uh, where it's going to, uh, I'm going to keep it maintained at that level. So law one, maximize returns. Law to diversify as you aren't doing it at the cost of not buying the best possible stock. And then law three is, is to put boundaries around, around it as long as it doesn't conflict with law one and law two. Great. All right. Nice analogy. I like that. So final section then before we move on to the quick fire question round, and that's just to finish, I think by highlighting uh, some current picks, hopefully any favorites from your watch list or even the actual portfolio itself. I mean, I've avoided asking for the names of all your portfolio constituents so far. People will need to sign up for that privilege information, of course. But perhaps you can share your favorite in inverted commas stock. Uh, maybe that's your largest holding in the portfolio, perhaps, or just one that immediately springs to mind. Well, my favorite isn't my largest. My largest as of this morning uh, was Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes neck and neck with Tesla, depending on the day. And there are two names that need no introduction or explanation today. Uh, but they certainly did when I invested in them. I can tell you, nobody <laughs> heard of Netflix when I bought it 20 years ago. And, and Tesla, same story, 12 years ago. So, but, so they're my two biggest uh, assets, I guess. But my favorite... Um, Right. My favorite stock, if I had to buy one stock now and go to a desert island for 20 years, I think that honor would go to Atlassian. Mm. 
mm-hmm. the makers of business software packages such as Trello and Jira and Bitbucket. And um, the co-founders, Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon Brooks, they're only in their 40s. Like they're still young men. They own 40% of the company or thereabouts, or 48%, I think, actually, they nearly have 50% ownership. It has tons of cash, something like $1.6 billion, and a product that sells itself through a land and expand model. And I truly believe that Atlassian is the next Microsoft, quote unquote. And, and I, I, so I just think by parking your money at Atlassian, leave it there for 20 years, uh, that would be what I'd do if I was heading off to a desert island. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something that I think a lot of uh, CMC uh, personnel listening in will be familiar. We use Jira on a daily basis. So uh, very familiar with Atlassian. But um, if, we, if we just focus on Tesla for a second, uh, they were highlighted as a favorite stock, again, inverted commas, I think uh, within your portfolio, uh, no, not portfolio, it's more like a profile section on my Wall Street. Each of your writers and contributors tend to have a favorite stock. Um, and uh, the company's beta button, uh, I'm sure you saw this, went live on Friday. Uh, so that allows owners essentially to request the firm's full self-driving software. So is the investment potential in autonomous vehicles, uh, which is obviously that self-driving software, software that's what it offers, part of your Tesla investment case, or is it strictly electric vehicles? Is that the vertical that you're most excited about, or is it solar, for example? You know, what 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 makes you so bullish on Tesla? Is it is it a combination of all these verticals, perhaps? Well, for a start, I must update my favorite on MyWallStreet.com's profile page, <laughs> but I do love Tesla for sure. And I think it will be the first trillion dollar car company as it really is a data company mm. with something like 100 times more miles, kilometers of real data for its autonomous software than the next biggest player, which mm-hmm. is uh, Waymo by Google. So like they, they have, I, I don't know how many tens of millions of miles of data in their AI system, but this autonomous driving is headed all of our way, like it is headed our way. And we will see in our lifetime, black cabs of London pulling up with no driver. Um, you could, so I think with Tesla, one could argue that it's an investment in the eradication of the biggest killer of young people in the world, which is road deaths. But um, Tesla is an investment in in a data business, real data business, because just think about it, when a car, a Tesla drives around a corner into a housing estate and there's a bunch of children playing, all the other Teslas in the area will know instantly that shared information, that hive, that network of information about the road network is really powerful. It will avoid accidents. It will avoid, it will reduce road deaths to as close to zero as possible. And, and that's what I particularly like about Tesla. And sometimes uh, it's not one of the 10 attributes I spoke about, but you want to find an, an aspect of your investment that gives you goosebumps. And I, I love knowing that I am invested quite meaningfully in a business that uh, is out to cure, finish road debts. And I, I think they'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we've talked about favorite stocks, ones that you're most bullish on. But if we flip to the other side of the coin, if you look back, is there an investment that particularly stings, one that you're not too fond thinking about? An investment is only sore <laughs> when you admit defeat and sell at a loss. And the biggest thing 
I suppose, was selling a stock called Select Comfort, which has since been renamed to Sleep Number in late, I think it was late 2008, for something like 20 cent or 30 cent a pop at a massive loss. I, I lost everything, only for it to grow from that day to this by 350 fold. So not only did I sell and take a loss, but it has grown to produce super normal returns in subsequent 13 years. Yeah, great. Well, I think it was important to mention because as much as you've got a lot of winners in there and a fantastic track record, you can't get all of them right. You can't pick everything. And I guess that's an important sort of implicit message for everyone listening in as well, just as much as the other listeners. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good point, Hayden. You're dead right. I mean, like, uh, of course, I'll sit here and I'll tell you my CAGR is great and my track history is great. And I think it is, but I have absolutely the road is littered with mistakes. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's move on then to your quick fire questions. So this is a more generic list of questions, I suppose. We ask them to all guests. So it won't be uh, completely curated for for your particular history or expertise, but just a lighthearted way to end the episode and feel free to answering as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. The first question is, in your opinion, what do you think the top mistake investors make is? Mm, Selling. Uh, Selling too soon, uh, if I can use three words. (laughs) Yeah, you absolutely can. And chimes with your uh, long-term investment uh, time horizon. That absolutely makes sense and something that's definitely come through in the interview so far. So number two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? My Wall Street, of course. <laughs> My Wall Street.com. There's others, of course. I, I Fortune, Fool.com, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Nasdaq, Yahoo Finance, all the usual suspects. I mean, I spend my life consuming this stuff, but my Wall Street is the place for people to go because we package everything in a nice, beautiful, jargon-free and exciting way. Yeah, perfect. Okay, question three then. What is the most memorable moment from your career to date, if you could pick just one? <laughs> most memorable moment? Oh gosh, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's so memorable. It's so memorable. I can't remember. Um, I think... At the very outset, when I founded my Wall Street with John, when the Motley Fool said they would invest and back us, when in fact all we had was a PowerPoint, um, and they invested with capital and with strategic advice, that was a hair-raising moment. That was, that was the most memorable moment in my career. Um, I was bowled over, and I was so... Like, uh, it was like, I mentioned goosebumps, Mm. I had goosebumps, I had tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe that the giant was going to support us. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see why that would live long in the memory. So our penultimate question then, if you could go back in time, is there a top tip that you would give your younger self? Yeah, I know what I'd tell me. The day you feel like selling select comfort, don't do it. (laughs) Back up the truck, (laughs) buy them with everything you can scrimp beg, borrow, find, <laughs> and you'll be up 350-fold <laughs> 12 years later. <laughs> yeah, I thought that might come back around. Um, all right, then, our, our, final, our final question, and it's a question, I suppose the opto question, we aim to speak to the investors outperforming benchmark and traditional market returns. So we ask everyone that we speak to, what is an investor's best source of alpha? Mm. Temperament, hands down. You win the game of temperament. This, the greatest investors in the world have a handle on their temperament. Perfect. 
uh, a lovely message to end on, I think. Thank you very much, Emmett, for joining us on the Opto Sessions podcast. It's been great to have you. My pleasure, Hayden. Great to see you and stay in touch. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.